Hi everyone, and welcome to the Worldonomics podcast, brought to you by the UQES diversity team. I'm Marty. I'm Bronwyn. I'm Sharada. And I'm Joe. And each week we bring in a new guest to talk about the issues that matter. UQES would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this meeting is taking place today. We acknowledge the country as the home of both the Turrbal and Jagera nations. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and future. Hi everyone, welcome to the second episode of our Career Pathways series in our Worldonomics podcast series. Today our guest is Professor Alicia Romboldi and she will be having a talk with us. Welcome Professor Alicia Romboldi. Thank you very much, very happy to be with you, thank you. Alicia, could you please start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. I'm a professor of economics here at the School of Economics. I have mostly taught econometrics courses. That's uh, my area of work and research. And at the moment, I'm actually embarking in a new adventure, teaching the practicum, the professional practicum courses for the school. I have a PhD in economics and econometrics. And I joined UQ in 2001, a very long time. Lovely. So we'll just start off our podcast with a fun question. What sport would you compete in if you were in the Olympics and why? If I were in the Olympics? Well, I always like swimming and volleyball, but I am short. And so it is a difficult um, a problem when one wants to be either a swimmer or a volleyball player at the Olympic level. But if I could, I would do one of those. Lovely. Thank you. So what made you decide to specialise in econometrics research? Was this something that you always wanted to do or did you kind of stumble across it? I stumbled across it, basically. My bachelor's degree is in science, so my only experience Exposure to statistics was just biostatistics at the time. So when I started my master's in agricultural economics, I then found econometrics, which is where all the empirical work was in, in resource economics and analyzing, you know, resource economics uh, modeling and all that. And so that's when I really started to get interested in econometrics. And eventually that's why I did my one of my majors in my PhD in econometrics. And What is something that you learned at university that you believe is vital in the workplace? There are a few things, but I think perseverance and commitment, whenever you need to get something done, it is up to you. It is up to to you to get it done. It's up to you to take over the challenges and to just, you know, go with it. You need to have enthusiasm for the things you do. I think university in general teaches you skills, but also teaches you to solve problems in general, right? And so I think that's the main thing that we encounter when we go out in the workforce and, you know, keeping time, being able to submit things on time. You know, as students, we hate assignments and we hate deadlines, but in reality, it's a good, it's a very, very, very good set of skills to have to be able to be on time. And Alicia, prior to working and researching at the University of Queensland, did you work um, anyplace else? I first worked at another university in Australia and that's when I arrived. So I was hired 
uh, to work in a very, very good, but very small department of econometrics. And I worked there initially. And then after that, I was hired by the University of Queensland to move here. So have you encountered any challenges in your career this far? And if so, how have you been able to overcome them? Well, this week was uh, the International Day of Women's, Women's International Day, it was a couple of days ago. I think the main things that I have encountered are related to being a female, mostly. There are a number of challenges, especially around having dual careers within couples. And this is a problem that, although it's also a male issue, but it does typically affect females more. And because we bear the children and, you know, and the systems are, they are set up for people that uh, work. I mean, you know, we can have childcare, but there are many, many, many hours of the day that you have nobody, no support, especially if you don't have family around. And so academic careers and many other careers, not only academia, are very, very demanding on time. If you don't commit and work many, many hours, you don't get ahead. And that is a huge difficulty. So having to manage all of that, having to give your children the time that they need, which is really important, at the same time, keeping your career alive and going forward is really, really difficult. And especially when there are two people with careers and both persons need to get their careers going, you cannot put it on stop on one and then restart it. That doesn't work. So that's, to me, the, the biggest challenges have been around that about how you balance your personal life with your work. So you've been working at UQ since 2001, I think you said. Have you seen this kind of stigma towards women in the workplace change over that time or is it still very present today? Well, I mean, I'm not sure that stigma will be the word that I choose. Uh, it, uh, it challenges of being dual career women and having children are still there. I think that the, the main things that have changed are that we talk about these things more. There are obviously main, much more understanding. And for instance, we, I think now, you know, try to give support systems to give assistance to women if they have to, you know, be on maternity leave and then return. They support for non-academics. Of course, there are flexible work times and all of that, which I think work fine and, you know, part-time work. That's actually not a something that helps a lot academics because if you work part-time then your career you, you know everyone else moves on and your area of research moves on and then you lose relevancy in your area of work right so that is an issue for academics right but it's not um, as much an issue for professional staff for instance they, they, these days I see there's a lot more support a lot more ability to work around flexible times around your schedules and I think that that's the things that we have improved. You know, it, it's a very difficult issue and it continues to be an issue that it hasn't been solved. And Alicia, would you be able to walk through a journal article that you most recently worked on or are currently working on? Sure. I'm working on a couple of things, but I'll tell you something related to Brisbane. Okay. Perfect. So something that we, uh, we've been, you probably were alive. Yes, you were in 2011. And in 2011, we had a flood, right? In Brisbane. I don't know if you were in Brisbane in 2011, but there was a flood in Brisbane. So the question then is what happens to housing markets? How do buyers and sellers react to situations where they're in frequent floods? Because it is an infrequent flood. So what we've done 
is we use what we, in economics, we talk about natural experiments. 2011 was a natural experiment. So there's theory that says that people are myopic and amnesic about, about this sort of thing. They don't, they discount the future. They think it's never going to happen again. So because the last time that ha things happened was in 74, and then there was a dam built for the, with a flat compartment, people truly believe that it was never going to happen again. And so what we actually then can do is we design, we actually design an econometric methodology to compute the distribution around the actual price of housing that is in the flat area, okay, the flat design area. And the theory says that people would have been paying zero risk prices. That is, they would have, before the flood, people didn't think that this was in the flood area, that it was in danger, and therefore they didn't discount that, okay? And so that's what the theory says. And so we, got, we gathered all the data before and after. And the theory says that immediately after there is a flood, then the prices will drop a lot more than way below where the true discounting should be. But then people will start forgetting again. And eventually they will go and pay full prices, that is similar prices as if you were in the zero risk. So we now have data since the mid 1990s all the way to 2017. And, and we found an econometric method to, to put this theory into, into place with the data and using this as a natural experiment. And we've in fact have been able to create this distribution and we can confirm that prices in, in quality, already quality adjusted, even if you adjust the quality of the housing, we, we know houses will be paid if they, they had zero risk before. The prices dropped dramatically in 2011, way, way, way below what we now assess to be, what will be the adjustment because you are in the flat area. But by 2017, the distribution of this was already the zero risk price was involved in the distribution. That means the prices were already back by 2017 to people paying if they, there was no risk of this ever happening again for housing that is located in the flat area. The thing about that is that uh, we need to remember that we all pay for these things. There is uh, taxpayers' money that has to go into recovery. There are uh, insurance this, um, issues to the insurance. So there are many, many, many uh, public policy issues that are around compensation. Should we compensate people because their house got flooded? Well, you know, maybe by saying five years later, you're going to get the same price you would have got if you didn't get flooded. Uh, it's something to think about, right? And now that we've seen sort of COVID hit in the, in the last year or so, would you consider that as another natural experiment? And do you have any sort of econometric questions that might arise in the next or now even and any sort of studies that might come out involving the housing marketplace from COVID-19? Oh, huge. Yes, absolutely. COVID is a big structural change. It's a major structural change. Well, we, we can only at this point have some thoughts because we don't have enough data on the other side of COVID because it hasn't finished yet. But, but we already suspect, at least in the housing, in, well, in the property market, what we think the biggest impact, in, at least well, my personal opinion, is the biggest impact is going to be on commercial property. And so because commercial property, the value of commercial property depends on its use, what is useful for. Right? 
And so if you think about this, if all of a sudden they, we need not less offices, the type of offices that we have are no longer relevant for the, the way we want to work, then it means it's buildings lose value. And you might think, oh, why is that uh, so important to society? Well, as it turns out, all superannuation funds are the major investors in commercial property. Okay, so, so when you uh, think about your uh, superannuation fund, which you will think once we start working, they, they are uh, major investors in commercial property. And so if the value of commercial property now falls, that means the returns for uh, investments that are in superannuation funds will fall. So we will have some uh, uh, very huge structural uh, issues with when it comes to how we use land. Okay, so using land, land, urban land is very valuable. And so if you think about, okay, this is now designed to be for commercial or mixed use. And now let's suppose that parts of the CBD that no longer come used for that. And then is this a good opportunity, for instance, to think about social housing closer to the CBD? Social housing is, you know, might be one thought we might have. So there are many, many issues that we, as economists we need to think about. And of course, once we, ha we have some data, we can start doing some, you know, proper econometric work. But at the moment, it's all sort of conjectures, right? I mean, at the moment, we start to have some data on transition and we start to see also another issue that is also important is going to be uh, firms, you know, small firms. So the number of small firms, how they have survived how they reacted, how they uh, reinvented themselves. So all of these type of informa uh, information is starting to come a bit. But as I say, we are in the transition still during COVID. Until COVID is over, we won't really be able to use it correctly as a natural experiment. And finally, Alicia, do you have any tips or advice for any students majoring in quantitative methods and analysis? Well, I mean, I'm biased here, but I think doing quantitative methods is probably the best thing you can do. And, you know, employers, I'm the employability officer of the school and employers are constantly looking for people that, that have quantitative skills. Some of the top things that employers worldwide now think are important in terms of skills are you know, are sort of very techni good technical skills and creativity. So try to find creativity too, okay? So creativity is about thinking outside the box. So think about how you can use your skills to position yourself so that things that can be done by machines, which many will, you try to, you know, use your skills to stay ahead of that. Right? And I think quantitative methods are absolutely fantastic for that. Make sure you take not only empirical course, empirical econometrics, but also some theory courses if you can. Understand some of the theory behind it because as the, the world changes, you know, you, you're going to have to learn more into the future. There will be new software, there will be new bigger data. So, so make sure that, that you have an understanding of the basics behind, you know, the statistical and mathematical basis behind some of the things on the way we think about quantitative methodology, right? So, so just try to, to make sure that you have some good theoretical foundation. That's actually very, very useful in the long run in, in any area, not only in quantitative, but also in economics in general or anything else you do that is, right? Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us a bit of an insight into your career and your research. I think there were some really good tips for students that are aspiring to that kind of career. So thank you.
no problem. And, you know, all the best to everyone. Work hard and we'll get there. (laughs) Thank you so much, Alicia. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We'll see you next time.